Hello, and welcome to the Seven Stage Podcast. I'm Joe Iping, and today we're presenting a webinar about what to do when you finish the core curriculum. Seven Stage tutor Nick begins with some general tips for continuing your studies, and then he and Seven Stage tutor Scott take questions from the audience. Good evening, everyone. My name is Scott Milam. I'm one of the managers of the Seven Sage Tutoring Program. Tonight, I'm joined by one of our fabulous tutors, Nick Place, who will be discussing what to do when you finish with the core curriculum. So without further ado, take it away, Nick. Thank you, Scott. Like you said, my name is Nick. I'm a tutor at Seven Sage. And I figured that I would talk today about something that I kind of like frequently get as just a tutor, having worked with so many clients and sort of like having, you know, gone through this process a lot, which is like something that I feel like people struggle with, which is like, again, like as the title of the webinar states, which is what to do after they finish the core curriculum. But in a lot of ways, that question is more about sort of like questions about how to study in general and sort of like, how is it that we teach ourselves and continue to teach ourselves in general? which is also something that I am sort of like personally interested in. And I've been personally interested in it for a long time. I mean, I think that we all teach each other, we are teach ourselves stuff. You know, for me personally, I've, I've sort of been a lifetime ago, I studied jazz guitar in college for some reason, probably not the best decision, but it was a really sort of good experience still. I am relatively fluent in Spanish. And so I've sort of like spent time teaching myself a foreign language. And then also I've been an English teacher for the past five years. So I've spent kind of like a lot of time thinking about like, what are like the ideal ways to go about learning something new? And what are the ideal ways, of course, to go about sort of like teaching somebody, but also a lot of what we tend to do as tutors is we sort of go through and we sort of like, we teach people what to do outside of our tutoring session and sort of how to go about studying for themselves. And I think typically when we're introduced to a new concept, what it is that we typically do is like we go through some sort of curriculum, as is the case here with Seven Sage, right? Like we get introduced to basically like a schema that somebody else writes and a schema that somebody else comes up with who has already gone through that process of learning something and they've developed something for us to learn in what they think is the correct order. So we get this sort of like schema, but still after we go through that schema and after we go through that curriculum, we still have a lot of work to do essentially to basically like create our own schema basically get to the point where we can just sort of do stuff instead of sort of thinking about this rule or thinking about what JY said in that particular video. Although I still do think about that sometimes when I'm doing like a logic game, there's some stuff that just sticks, but still like after you get through the core curriculum, it's like, it's a lot of information. It's in fact, it's a ton of information. It's like, Scott, do you know how many hours it is that we have in the core curriculum? You know, it's been a while since I checked that, but I'm sure someone here is going to supply that in the chat. Thank you. Very good. 217 says Roberto Parada. I don't know if I should be saying that again in a Spanish accent or not, but that's how I'm going to say it. Because like I said, I speak Spanish, so I want to show off my accent a little bit. (laughs) Perfect, he says. Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's a lot of hours and we can't sort of like reasonably expect anyone to memorize all those hours. And in fact, like that's not really what we want to do. We don't want to have you memorizing stuff. We want to have you sort of like taking in this information again in an introductory phase. And then sort of as you're moving on, what you're trying to do is sort of like fill in the gaps of your knowledge. You're trying to assess the quality of your knowledge at every given point. And you're trying to sort of, again, make it to the point where you can just do stuff. A musician doesn't want to think about really trying not to make this <laughs> completely about me, but this is these of the anecdotes that I have. A musician doesn't want to think about what note should I play here next. They just want to do it. You know, I don't want to think about how to say water in Spanish. I just want to say the word water in Spanish. We want to get to the same place with the LSAT, but the question is like, how do we get to that point, right? And I think the first thing that 
we can talk about in this case is that we want to sort of begin to connect concepts into sort of our own more coherent whole, rather than think of things as sort of like these isolated ideas. This is how I translate an if-then statement, or this is what a necessary condition is, or this is how I solve this particular type of logic game. We want to try to like connect things into a coherent whole, again, so we can just do stuff and so that we can also apply that to sort of the world outside of us and things like that. So basically the idea of this chat here, this webinar is to say like, okay, on the one hand, how do we make those connections? How do we sort of begin to move away from sort of relying on what somebody else says about the LSAT and start of start relying on what we know about the LSAT, which is like, how do we teach ourselves that stuff? And then secondly, again, in terms of assessing the quality of our knowledge at any given point, we want to think about how we can get feedback on what that quality of our knowledge is without necessarily like relying on other people. So two parts, right? Again, one is, again, how do we make those connections? And again, two is sort of how do we get feedback? So connections. The first thing I think that most people would say that if you want to get really good at a skill, and after all, the LSAT is trying to test us on a lot of skills. And not only is the LSAT trying to test us on a lot of skills, but in fact, like taking the LSAT is in and of itself a skill. These ideas about how do we get through timing for something, how quickly can we read a reading comprehension passage, these are all skills that themselves are kind of, in a sense, particular to the LSAT. But also, of course, outside of that, we're trying to learn a specific set of skills about analytical reasoning, how well we can assess the quality of an argument, sort of spatial reasoning sometimes, and then how well we can sort of assess the quality of an argument in long form with reading comprehension. And so like with the first thing, you know, basically the thing is not just practicing a lot, but also trying to immerse yourself in these ideas. And what I mean by sort of like concept immersion is that what we want to do is we want to take stuff from here and take stuff from here and basically like be exposing our brains and be exposing ourselves to similar ideas, but all the time in a lot of different ways. So one thing is attending a webinar like this or listening to podcasts or getting on forums online or reading different books or watching different videos, joining study groups, helping other people, all of this stuff really, again, it just helps our brain to make connections and basically say that like, oh, this stuff is important. I mean, if I hear something once on a video or I hear something once on a podcast, and then that's the only time that I hear it, then I might not remember that because that's just not the way that memory works. We tend to only remember stuff, especially when it's conceptual. Like we tend to only remember stuff when we're introduced to it over and over and over again. So instead, if I hear this idea on a podcast and I hear the same idea on a webinar and then I read somebody else making a post on it, then my brain is probably just going to say, oh, that's important Then I need to remember it. And then that idea is going to stick around a lot better. And then, of course, at the same time, I'm also trying to make those ideas make sense to myself and then take that and apply it to my own practice at home. And so it's just this sort of like, again, holistic idea where we're trying to make connections sort of in the world by immersing ourselves in the LSAT, which is, you know, not always the most fun thing to do to immerse yourself in the LSAT. That's, like, that's kind of what it takes to get good at stuff. Give me kind of a yeah. practical example of that. You, you gave several in terms of consuming a lot of LSAT related content, but what are some other things that we can do that can immerse ourselves in that skill set? That's kind of it, right? Like I remember that when I was studying for the LSAT, I would be sort of like cooking food and listening to an LSAT podcast. Or when I was trying to sort of break past this certain score, I was like on the forums asking people all the time, like, how did you guys do that? And so it's 
And also the other thing that I'll get to in a second is like looking for that stuff in the real world. If I'm learning stuff on the LSAT, and again, it's a real skill. It's not just sort of isolated to the LSAT, but I'm actually looking for that stuff in the real world. By immersion, that's... Yeah, and the the fact that you're using that term immersion, I mean, it kind of conjures that idea of, you know, kind of the idea we get from language learning. That idea, the best way to learn this is not just to say these words in a classroom, but actually take it outside and to learn it in a broader environment. Is that kind of the the analogy that you're making there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you sort of want to be in the world of the LSAT. Again, as sometimes not fun as that is, you know, you just want to sort of think about that stuff as frequently as possible. And again, you know, part of the reason why immersion works for like language learning is that you're constantly hearing new things and you're being challenged by stuff rather than just doing your own self-directed study. You know, so if I'm watching a movie in Spanish, I'm going to hear a bunch of stuff that I've never heard before because I can't just like, I don't know what that stuff is. That's not the language that I speak natively. And so it's the same with the LSAT where it's just like, you want to be taking in this stuff and sort of be surprised by information and also see that same type of information in different places so that you know that it's important. Okay. Okay. So again, the next thing probably to move on to is just this idea of making connections to not just the world, but also connections in the context of the LSAT. Again, you don't want to just think that this rule only applies to this one question type of logical reasoning, or this rule only applies to this game in logic games, because really like all of this stuff connects together in a big way. On the one hand, making connections on the test is about doing a lot of stuff. Right. On the one hand, keeping a wrong answer journal or really just keeping an answer journal in general is a really good way to do that because you can see patterns for yourself of like, oh, so this question that I got wrong yesterday that's a necessary assumption question is similar to this question that I'm looking at today and I can like make these connections between those two things, right? It's about looking for patterns. Or if I'm doing this consistently, I might notice that, oh, this trap answer I've seen a million times already where they like, it's a sufficient assumption question or something like that. And they're they're switching around the order of things that we're trying to connect. They're making something that, we, that should be a necessary condition. They're making that into a sufficient condition. And I've seen that over and over again. And so I'm like constantly trying to make these connections, between different question types. Keeping track of all your incorrect answers does something similar, which is I need to revisit that. Again, like part of what I kind of want to emphasize a lot today is that in order to properly learn something, you have to just sort of keep coming back to it. You have to keep exposing yourself to the idea, even though the goal is to get to a place where we can do it in novel situations. The thing that you have to do initially is just to be able to recognize it in the first place. And so after you get done with core curriculum and you're sort of working on how do I keep from making the same mistakes over and over again, it's like, well, go back and look at your wrong answers. Be continuously analyzing how is this wrong answer that I got similar to this other wrong answer that I got last week. And two, the idea of revisiting stuff, I don't know if you guys have done this a lot, but I know how surprising and also frustrating it would be to go back and review my incorrect answers and then get it incorrect again, which just shows me that I need to still, there's something there that I'm still missing and there's a pattern that I can get out of that. And again, it's just about sort of making connections across different questions, not only of the same question type, but also, okay, I'm noticing here that this trick for necessary assumption questions sometimes works for strengthening questions where like, oh, I can negate this answer. And if it attacks my argument for a strengthening question, then that also is a good, that's a, the correct answer. It doesn't always work like that, but I can sort of like, again, pulling this stuff from one thing to another. I was going to hop back a little bit because you talked about something that I know to us as tutors is just kind of second nature at this point, but I think you'd be surprised how many people we run into in consults or other places that just 
have never even heard of anyone doing a wrong answer journal, let alone have any idea of how to actually put one together. So can you just define that and explain, you know, really what it is, but also how we do it or just kind of give some, some guidance to those who might be hearing that for the first time and thinking, oh yeah, hey, that sounds like something I might want to do. True. Good point. I'm throwing jargon around, which we should take the time to define the jargon a little bit. Uh, I don't know. For me, doing wrong answer journals was just this process of, I'm not just going to look at the answer that I got wrong. It's sort of like, be like, oh, okay, read an explanation, watch a video and just sort of like, be like, all right, I get it and move on. Because again, there's a difference between being able to sort of take stuff in and actually being able to sort of deeply understand it and produce it yourself. So the idea is that with a wrong answer journal, you want to go through, well, uh, first off, you want to go through each answer, A, B, C, D, and E. And you want to say like, okay, this is wrong because of X, Y, and Z reason. And then this is wrong because of X, Y, Z reason. And this is correct because of my analysis of the argument. So I'm doing a lot of stuff. I'm doing like a deep analysis of the argument where I'm really, really, really making sure that I understand if there's like any question, I'm not moving on until I've completely figured out what exactly the argument is saying. If I'm stumped, then I'm like, again, I'm looking at whatever resource that I can find. I'm like Googling LSAT answers and watching videos and whatever. Uh, So the idea of a wrong answer journal is to be as deep and like precise as you can about how it is that you're thinking about something when you make a mistake. Also, you should be doing that same thing whenever you find a question to be difficult or when you flag a question during PT or when you flag a question during study, like you should also put that into that group of stuff because Mm. that stuff that I'm not that good at answering this question, even though I got it right, or maybe I got it right accidentally, like I I still want to put that into maybe not wrong answers, but like an answer journal in general. And then, you know, again, because I want to continuously re-expose myself, I'm going back and going through that stuff. If I make the wrong answer again, then it's, I mean, it could be something that I looked at three months ago, then I've looked at hundreds of questions since then and done wrong answer journals since then. And so I forget, I forget why I got it wrong. And so I want to go back and redo it and reread my wrong answer, my wrong answers from the beginning. And, you know, again, it's just about like deeply understanding something so that you can recognize patterns and that you can apply those things to novel situations. Because if you don't take the time to really deeply analyze, that you're not going to understand when that same thing occurs the next time. No, I think that's fantastic. So often with clients who come to us, they've read through the core curriculum, they've watched the videos, they've taken n number of PTs, and they wonder why they're not improving from taking more and more tests. And a big part of the reason is that they're not actually examining those tests. They're not reviewing them in a way that actually helps them get better. And I think a big part of it is kind of the most simple idea of how would you review a practice test? Well, you should look at the wrong answers and figure out why you got them wrong. And on some level, hopefully everyone is actually doing that. Hopefully you're not just taking taking PTs and chunking them in the garbage. But oftentimes we're not very systematic in the way that we pursue that, or maybe we only look for the superficial reason why we got a particular answer wrong. So I think a wrong answer journal, and there's a variety of different ways to do that, but a wrong answer journal where you really examine why you got that question wrong, why the right answer is right. And then you know, examine your own process. You examine why it is that you got that particular answer wrong. Maybe it was because there was some trick that you hadn't seen before, or maybe it's a trick you've seen a hundred times before and you keep following for. And maybe what you need to do is examine, well, why is it that I keep falling for this particular thing? Why do I keep confusing necessary and sufficient conditions and letting the LSAT trick me in this way? But that is a key part of how you can continue to improve after you've learned the fundamental concepts behind the LSAT is just really going through and examining, hey, every mistake I make, I want to really dig down and figure out how can I not make this mistake again? Yeah. And as tempting as it is to just throw, chuck the PT in the trash afterwards, especially when you don't do that well on it, like, yeah, you got to go through (laughs) it. 
process of like reviewing that stuff. Also, something else that I'll add to the wrong answer journal is like thinking about your mental state at the time. Was I rushing? Was I like too worried about timing? Did I mm-hmm. like not give myself enough to sort of space here in this test? It's like there's other stuff too besides like the actual technical aspect of why you got it wrong. It's also, you know, again, like thinking about the LSAT is it's testing skills, but it's also testing. You have to learn how to do the test Mm -hmm. itself, right? Part of that is thinking a lot too about your mental state during the test and sort of like, when do I feel anxious and like all that stuff, which definitely goes into the answer journals as well. For me, it did anyway. Connections, getting back to it, the sort of like the last thing that I wanted to talk about, which goes back to the idea of immersion, which is making connections to the world outside of the LSAT. Again, ultimately, we're not just learning the LSAT to get good at the LSAT. We're learning the LSAT. I mean, that kind of is ultimately the goal to be real, but <laughs> it's like a real practical, there's real practical skills in there. Although sometimes I think that like logic games is, <laughs> I'm never ever going to use logic games again and I hate them, but with logical reasoning, it's like I can recognize really quickly and easily like when somebody is making a bad argument. And mostly I try to limit that to what I see on the internet, which there's plenty of, hopefully I don't right now say something stupid that goes out of the internet, but there's plenty of stupid things on the internet that you can just immediately be like, okay, that's this thing that I've been studying right now. The author is confusing this thing for that thing. And similarly with, I don't know, like hearing politicians speak, you just you hear bad terrible arguments all the time. (laughs) Of course, you know, like you don't want to necessarily bring that to bar talk. You know, if you're just like hanging out with your friends at a party, like no, correct them on their argument structure. You know what I mean? But just in general, like- Is that not what everyone does at bars? That's just you, Scott. That's that's, that's probably why I don't get invited very often. (laughs) (laughs) Probably true. No, but you know, you just want to be looking for that stuff in the world because again, it comes down to like- our brain uses the term brain like it's something different than what we are, but like it, it's a thing that does stuff and we remember stuff without us like actively telling it to remember it. And so the more you actively engage with that stuff beyond just studying for the LSAT, the more you are going to recognize that, oh, this is actually something that is applicable to stuff beyond this test that, you know, I hope to score well on and then never think about again. By the way, if you're interested and get that sort of score, please let me know. I think that's also something for us that's useful for us to bear in mind because sometimes the the LSAT can feel like this arbitrary exercise. And to be clear, it is absolutely an arbitrary exercise. At the same time, there are skills there that are not just applicable within the pages of the test. So I think you make a great point that going out and using those not only is going to be beneficial to people studying for the LSAT, but hopefully for them to be able to retain those skills after they go and they're done with the LSAT and they're going into law school because, you know, hopefully there can be some benefit to your LSAT studies that go beyond just you getting a particularly high number on this one test. You know, we're all hopefully in the process of preparing ourselves for three years of law school and the logical skills that you're learning now to prepare yourself for the LSAT hopefully will continue to be useful for those three years and and throughout the, the practice of law beyond. Yeah. And, and too, like a big thing that I, I don't know, I've thought about a lot, especially since I've started tutoring is just like how useful reading comprehension is, which is something that like mm-hmm. people hate and have a hard time improving on. And, you know, like even me, it's like, I, I ended up after my <laughs> brief stint is like trying to do jazz guitar for some reason. I ended up as a philosophy major, which is a much more profitable major, of course. It might be more than jazz guitar. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> really about equivalent, I would think. I think you're about even to be real. Yeah. 
uh, just bad, bad college decisions. But you know, I, I say all, all that to say that, like, I, I thought that I was good at reading because we have to, like, the stuff that you have to read for that is just like super dense and, and kind of hard. But then you work on that stuff more and you develop an even more keen sense that, like, I still, like, I use outside of just sort of like studying reading comprehension for the LSAT or teaching reading comprehension in the LSAT. It's like, I, I recognize when stuff is structured in a certain way. And it's just like, it's so much more instinctual to read and analyze long form arguments now, even though that's kind of like what my major was. Mm-hmm. And two, like some of the people that I work with for tutoring, they have told me directly that they come out of it saying there's stuff that I didn't know. I didn't know that I didn't know how to read in this kind of way, but now I feel like I'm really a lot better about it now. So again, this stuff is applicable. And the point is for getting better at the LSAT and getting better at it is like, you want to constantly be looking for ways to actually trying to apply it because that's going to, you get this feedback, you get this sort of, you practice it in the real world and then you put it on the test and you go out into the real world and you put it on the test. And that helps you remember stuff a lot better. So that's part one, right? That's the idea that sort of like you want to be making connections. You want to try to immerse yourself as much as possible. And then next, we're going to talk about some like feedback and specific ways that we can practice that will help us again, make sure that we're making those connections in the right way. Okay. So part two, feedback. It's nice to have these ideas about learning in general and just like, know the way that we learn, because again, a lot of people just don't necessarily think about that a lot. I mean, we want to sort of be aware of how it is that we take in information and how it is that we sustain information over long periods of time. But then, you know, in terms of like practical stuff on the LSAT, there's also this idea that we want to, again, assessing the level of our knowledge at any given point, sort of like what our weaknesses are. And, you know, another thing that I that I see all the time as like we work with people is that people just take PTs, like practice tests over and over again, and then they sort of hit a plateau and you're like, well, there's specific things that you can do to work on, again, to both practice and get better and sort of hone in on your weaknesses, but also to, if I'm practicing this specific thing, I want to get feedback on that specific thing too. Like, Mm -hmm. how do I know if I'm getting better at speed? How do I know if I'm rushing at a certain point? How do I know if I'm sort of actually getting better time sections or full tests? I'm going to talk about this stuff. Sorry, I'm reading some of the the questions here. I'm definitely 100% going to talk about all this stuff. Because it's something that, again, we get this stuff all the time. So first off, feedback. We're taking the things that we're practicing, we're trying it out. And then those that trying it out gives us feedback in terms of like, okay, what is it that I really need to work on? And again, the important thing here is that it directs your study. Again, you finish the Mm -hmm. core curriculum. You're like, what do I do? Well, doing this stuff, getting feedback on this stuff directs your study so that you're like, okay, I need to work on this thing. And then you go work on this thing. And then you come back and you apply it. And then you get more feedback and so on and so forth. Of course, the most obvious way to get feedback is by taking practice tests. But this is the broadest, most general type of feedback that you can get because it's just like, okay, where am I at? I've been doing all this studying. Where's my score? Is this stuff working? You know, and then sort of like from there, you can do more specific types of stuff. I'm not going to talk about that too much because that's kind of what everybody does anyway. You take practice tests and then you study and then you take practice tests. But also built into the core curriculum is, are these problem sets? And you also, I think, want to continue doing problem sets after you finish the core curriculum because again, that's a really, really, really good way to focus on specific stuff. So if I've done all these problem sets and then like, so like, you know, I do this sufficient assumption section of, of seven stage, and then there's a lot of stuff that comes after that. And then there's reading comprehension stuff. And then it's like, okay, well, I remember how to do it, but still like, I need to a lot more practice on this stuff. And you get that first by taking the practice test and you're like, oh, well, I'm getting weakened questions wrong 50% of the time. I really need to work on that. Probably the most efficient way to do that is not to take a full practice test. You probably want to do some more problem sets of weakened questions so that again, you can get a really deep idea 
you can recognize it every time you see it and you don't have to just sort of like keep banging your head against the wall. Because again, what are there? Four and a half on average weekend questions per test per section. And so if you're taking a three section test and you're trying to get better at weekend questions, you're only getting four, like maybe seven tops weekend questions to practice. You're only getting that many opportunities to actually get better at weekend questions over the, all of the other stuff that you're trying to do. So if I'm specifically trying to target that thing, I want to actually do more problem sets. And then time sections are full test. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that too. But also, you know, you want to, if you're doing problem sets and you're cutting up the test, you want to be strategic about it. You don't want to just say like, okay, I'm just going to randomly select practice tests to sort of make problem sets out of. It's probably a good idea to like, for instance, save the 80 to the most present as just like, I'm only going to use those for practice tests. Maybe from like 50 to 80, you can take half of those, maybe fewer. I don't know. It depends on how often you want to take practice tests. And the 50 and below, it's just, at least for me, this is what I did for 50 and below. It's just like, I use that stuff for just still practicing and practicing and practicing and learning the basis and just like drilling stuff over and over again. So again, practice tests, problem sets. Yeah. Practice tests give you kind of a broad view of your skills on the test. So they're a, a diagnostic tool to use different terminology that lets you yeah, assess, you know, hey, where am I at on all of these different metrics of the test? It's valuable because it's the closest thing to the actual that we have. But it also, of course, it's testing all of the different skills in one kind of big package. So problem sets, in contrast, let you really narrow down your focus onto very specific skills and really drill bones once you've identified a weakness, whether that be a particular question type. But something else uh, that I would throw in there is if timing is a particular weakness of yours, problem sets can absolutely help you address that. So something we notice with clients a lot, we recommend to most of our clients that if you're aiming for a uh, for high score, you really want to be able to tackle the first 10 or so LR questions on every section within the first 10 minutes, or sometimes we talk about it the first 15 and 15 minutes. If people have a lot of difficulty with that, if they're way over over that quota. You're perhaps as a result, they're either not finishing or not giving enough time to some of the harder questions of the test. But something that you can absolutely do is you can drill those first 10 or those first 15 questions on an LR section. And you can really practice your speed, not only getting those easy questions right, but also getting them right under time so that you'll actually have time for some of the harder things later on. And that's a very common drill that I use with my students. Yeah. And also I will say too, that the idea of timing, like a lot of times there's kind of like two reasons why people might struggle with timing. One of them is just that like, maybe they're like a little bit flurry. I'm not a fast reader. Like I, when I do reading comprehensive sections to be to other people that score high, some people have like, like Scott, how much time do you have left after an RC section? Usually five or six minutes. Yeah, like that's crazy to me. I have one minute left at the end of RC section. I'm still very accurate, but I'm a slow reader. But for LR stuff, a lot of times it's, again, if you're not good at answering that type of question, it's going to take you longer. But if you practice that type of question over and over again, it's going to become much more, again, of a kind of a reflex that you use rather than something that's going to take a lot of time. There's that, there's problem sets, there's practice tests. I was going to do blind review next, but I think I'm going to wait until the end because again, that's a more broad thing and it kind of ties into timing too. So somebody asked about prioritizing time sections or full tests. Oh, actually, let me just answer this. So how many problem sets should we be doing for each section? I mean, again, it just depends on how, like, how many do you need? If you did this problem set for weekend questions and you're not good at it still, do more problem sets. Like, keep going back and keep making sure that you're getting better at this stuff. So somebody else asked about sort of prioritizing taking time sections versus taking the full tests. I would also say taking untimed questions is a super, super helpful thing. One of the reasons is, is because a lot of times, it depends on where you are, but a lot of times it, it just gives 
gives you a good sense of what's my comfortable base rate for completing a section. If you're comfortable and you're not taking, I mean, like if you're like taking as much time as you need, you're going to be more accurate. But sometimes like I work with people all the time that like they'll finish with five minutes, but they're like skipping a million questions and they're sort of really, really rushing through the test. And I'm like, try taking an untimed section and see where you're at. A lot of people finish under 35 minutes anyway, or if they finish over 35 minutes, it's, it's not really more than 40. So what that tells you is that, okay, so I need to either just slow down, right? If you're getting under 35 minutes and you're taking untimed sections anyway, for me, when I did untimed sections, I think it was still a little bit over 35 minutes, but still, it just gives you a good sense of pace. What is my sort of normal base rate? Because you want to get a good feeling for how fast you need to go rather than constantly looking at the clock and saying like, oh, I need to rush to this point. So practicing untimed tests can really, really be helpful for RC too. People sort of, I mean, RC can be a hard one for timing, but a lot of times people rush through the through the reading comprehension passages way too fast and then take too much time on the on the section. So it's like if you take an untimed reading comprehension passage, you're like, oh, actually, if I just comfortably read this reading comprehension passage and I pay attention to stuff in the way that I should be doing it, I get through the questions way faster. And I sort of again, you're just getting feedback on what timing feels like. What does it feel like to take an untimed section? How does that compare to what it feels like to take a time? section. How can I relax more during the test? This is the type of feedback that I mean with taking untimed sections. Any thoughts on that one, Scott? No, I, the one thing caution I might give you or give people listening at home here is I often see people rely too heavily on untimed sections. I think they can be a good, for kind of the reasons that you just pointed out, taking the occasional untimed section can be a good way of getting a gauge of what your natural pace through material is and let you kind of base some of your other decisions off that. It is, however, a definite mistake to regularly or primarily take untimed sections to try to develop your skills on a particular thing. Because often there are strategies which are incredibly useful in taking untimed sections, but which would be useless if you had to do them on time. In logic games, is kind of an obvious example of that. Given infinite time, almost any logic game can be solved by just drawing a certain 16 boards and putting every single possibility out there. But of course, on the actual exam, you won't get to do that. So yeah, again, it's a great diagnostic skill, but don't take that as a license to primarily be doing that. Uh, you do want to develop, yeah. you don't want to lose your sense of timing or develop strategies that you then have to unlearn. Yeah, that's a really good point because I don't. we don't want to lead anybody astray here in this case. Another thing that I like to suggest, because again, it's just about getting what's your normal pace. And like, this is something that you can do just again, at like regular checkpoints to say like, okay, how am I doing with speed at this point? But, you know, again, it's, it's like a diagnostic tool. It's a tool for knowing, again, how to deal with stress sometimes in the test. Again, I like, I, I use it a lot again, just to sort of tell people, like, just like, slow down, just slow down a second, you know, like you're going way too fast on this stuff. Like you maybe Maybe you have more time than you think you do. Or on the opposite of that, it's mm -hmm. like, oh, I only need to cut off five minutes from my just like normal relaxed pace. And then that becomes sort of like, you know, again, taking the test in chunks and sort of like working on timing and individual sections. Again, rather than doing just only practice tests all the time, you want to sort of focus again on what's my sense of time for LR? Maybe I should work on that for a week. And what's my sense of time for RC? Maybe I should work on that for a week. Yeah, mm -hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, good. So we get untimed sections, speed drills, like kind of what Scott was saying earlier, which is maybe the opposite of what we were talking about, which is like, okay, so I'm noticing that I'm finishing the first 10 in 13 minutes. That's too slow. I need to, I need to speed up. So again, in that case, you want to try different stuff out. 
we should actually be really clear on this, that there are differences between like, I'm doing this to practice test mode stuff. And then on the other hand, I'm doing it to see like, what's the line for me between how fast I can go and when I start to lose accuracy. Because it might just be that I'm spending 13 minutes on the first 10 sections because I'm just being way too slow, right? And so like, what happens mm-hmm. if I speed it up by two minutes and then I'm at 11 minutes and I it's the same amount of questions that I get right. right? And it's like, okay, well, I can just speed up. Or if I do 10 minutes and it's the same amount of questions that I can get right. It's a way to like, Again, focus on a specific section of the test to get a sense of timing rather than relying completely on the clock. But like you're sort of doing that over and over again gives you a good sense of, mm-hmm. of you know, how it is that I should be doing it. Also, you know, things like confidence drills kind of get at the same idea where I, you know, maybe I, I don't know. I work with a lot of people that do this where they'll like choose the correct answer and then they'll go back and unchoose it, and <laughs> choose a, like a trap answer or something like that. Again, it gives you this is not something you shouldn't in the test to be clear, right? You shouldn't in the test just choose the answer that your gut tells you to do and then move on. But if you're having trouble with stuff, I'm second guessing myself too often. Doing confidence drills, again, can give you feedback on like, how accurate is my intuition? If I'm switching my answers all the time and getting the wrong answers when I switch, then like, how accurate is my intuition? And then you incorporate that into your general test strategy as a whole. Anything you want to add to that, Scott? I was just going to say, it might be helpful to define what a confidence drill is. Yeah. So it's basically just this idea that I am going to take a set of questions or I'm going to take a whole section and I'm just going to go through it. And I'm not going to be dumb about just being like, that seems right. Click next. But I'm just going to say, okay, I feel confident about this one rather than spending an extra 30 seconds or a minute on this question, verifying it. I'm just going to, I'm just going to move on. I'm just going to do it, move on. And again, I'm going to see how accurate am I? And another good thing about that is you can review it. You can go back and see like, well, I actually wasn't that accurate in this case. Like what was I missing? Oh, it was this thing. So you're again, just getting constantly folding in things to your learning process. Yeah. And usually we find that when people do that, they're actually surprised by how high their accuracy is. What is your gut instinct? What the right answer is? What's the first one that you click and you immediately have to move on? It's amazing how how high our accuracy is and how much time we waste by sitting on questions after we think we've come to the answer, still trying to deliberate. Uh, And that's ultimately time Mm -hmm. that could go to answering questions that ultimately you're having to guess on at the tail end of the test. Yeah. Okay, so we've talked about a lot of stuff. The last thing to mention is definitely blind review because that's a really super helpful mm. tool. That is your sort of assessment of, again, given infinite time. A lot of the thing about untimed sections is that you still want to do it at a brisk pace. Like you're not like taking forever on each question. You're still like doing it at a brisk pace, but you're like counting up rather than counting down with a timer. And you're just, you're seeing how long it takes you. But blind review is more about sort of like taking as much time as you need. Okay, I'm going to really dig through and comb through each individual question to see how much do do I really understand this stuff? A lot of times the point of blind review, one of the good things about blind review is again, to track your progress on a broader level, but to do so in a way that says, do I really understand fundamentally the concepts here? It's one thing to not get it immediately as I'm going through the whole test timed, but it's another thing if I'm like going through it slow and I'm still getting it wrong. So it's again, a really good way of just gauging like uh, what's the level of focus that I need to have on this particular question type or with reading comprehension passages or with logic games, all that stuff. It's again, it's a gauge of given infinite time, how am I doing across all this stuff? I was going to say, and it's such a good guide to which of these other tools to use as well. So if you on blind review are not doing much better than you do on the time section, well, that 
probably tells you that to improve, you're going to need to go back and study more fundamental concepts. Whereas is the case with several of my clients right now, if you've got a 10 or higher point gap between your actual and your blind review, well, then your issue is really timing. And that's where drills ranging from confidence drills or speed drills or these other sorts of timing improving measures are really the thing you should be focusing your time on. And so often I see people waste a lot of their study time, you know, studying the wrong things when their problem is timing, they're spending time on the core curriculum or vice versa, that they're spending a lot of time drilling and drilling and drilling, not improving when ultimately they don't fundamentally understand the concepts well enough to get the questions right, regardless of how the time pans out. Yeah. You know, and also it could be a good indication that you're moving in the right direction too. I'm mm-hmm. working with somebody right now, actually, that when we first started working together, their blind review was a few points higher than their general test score. And then it shot up way up 178, mm-hmm. 180 all the time, but he was still getting the same stuff on his PTs. And it's like, well, you're like, this is good. This is a really good sign for you. And then all of a sudden he, the other day got like a 172 on one of his tests. So like, it's, it's also a good indicator that you're moving in the right direction. Cause one of the things that just, I think is necessary. I don't know what you Scott, it's just like, you kind of have to have a little bit of patience with yourself and sort of like trust the process mm-hmm. in a sense, right? Where you're just like, it's not something that you can just rationalize your way out of. You just have to sort of like practice it over and over and over again. And then if you're doing, if you're practicing the right way, again, like letting all of this stuff direct what it is that you study. Do I need to study this particular question? Do I need to work more on reading comprehension? Do I need to sort of spend more time doing timing drills and stuff like that? It's like all of these exercises that I'm talking about today are ways for you to focus on the right things. And then in that way, you can trust the process and get better as a result. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a good lead in into some questions. So we want to give you guys some opportunity to ask your specific questions about how you should be studying after blind review. So go ahead and throw up a hand if you have a question, and then I will ask you to unmute yourself and then you'll be able to ask. So we'll start with Ashley. Hi. Hi, Ashley. Hi, Scott. Hi, Nick. Thanks so much for doing this and for all your insights. My question is, when would it be a good time to consider a seven-stage tutor? If you just finished the core curriculum, you know, when would you, how would you recommend someone to gauge that they want to just optimize their studying? Yeah, Scott, I actually like what you have to say about this stuff. So I'm going to put you on the spot. (laughs) Oh, sure. Here's kind of the elevator pitch version for LSAT tutoring. Ultimately, anytime you want to hire a tutor that you think would be useful to you, we will find a way to kind of meet you where you're at. So our program specifically, we start off by coming up with a plan that is customized to you, where we go through and not only lay out how we're going to spend the time that you've purchased with us, but also we give you a daily study plan that's tailored based on your analytics and where you're at in your LSAT plan. And then you're able to kind of schedule your sessions on whatever schedule you want. So we've had people who literally are just starting their LSAT study and we give them a study plan and they go off and they work on the core curriculum for a few months. And then they come back to us when they're ready to start taking PTs and really intensively study. And we have people who are just a few days out from the exam and who are wanting to do just an intensive refresh on their timing and everything in between. So wherever you happen to be in that process, we ultimately can kind of create a plan that's that's designed and customized for you. And that's really one of the things that we pride ourselves on on our programs. We don't just, if you buy 10 hours from us, you don't get the same 10 hours that everybody else gets. We're really going to tailor an experience that's designed to help you get to your goal score. Yeah. It's sort of like not to turn this into a tutoring commercial. Really <laughs> yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll shift uh, away from this quickly. 
<laughs> but like the thing that I think is good about it is that like we're not instead of like because you, you, again you've already been through like the core curriculum stuff and so it's not it's not just the introductory stuff where you're like here's how to do this kind of thing it's like we're taking a look at what you already know and we're saying like well how can we bring you along further and sort of again focus this stuff specifically on you so that you learn it deeply like what it is that we're talking about like how did how is it that we can get you to a place where you're again doing this stuff automatically on your on your own rather than relying on somebody else's sort of version of like how is it that you do something all right thanks very much for the question ashley thank you all right then alexandra hi hey how's it going (laughs) so for the wrong question bank i can see how it's really helpful for the logical reasoning section but let's say you get questions wrong on the logic games or reading comprehension would you consider taking like the whole section into your answer bank or is it like the questions that you're looking at specifically does that make sense yeah that's a that's a it definitely does it's a great question i think with like logic games the thing that i i tend to tell people is like rather than making it into like an answer journal or something something like that. It's like, again, I don't know, like so on the one hand, it's like this idea of the foolproof method, which is this idea that you're doing it over and over again until it becomes reflexive. And again, the point of doing that is so it, it's similar to reviewing your incorrect answers. It's like so that you know that you can actually generate the thing. A lot of people are kind of like maybe a little bit skeptical because they think that, oh, I'm just memorizing a game and then that's not going to be helpful for when I get a new game. But definitely is because you are, again, it's the logic games. It's all about pattern recognition. Again, just watch a video and you're like, okay, I get it. And you do it once, you're not really going to ingrain that pattern into you. So like basically by doing foolproofing and by sort of doing this stuff over and over again, you're giving yourself like this kind of memory bank database of stuff to work on in the future. We could do an analogy for all types of stuff, which is like like sports or music or language learning or whatever. It's like people who get good at sports, they practice the same drills over and over and over again. They do it slow, they do it fast, which gives them the ability to use those same types of skills in real time in novel situations when stuff is different. In terms of RC, the thing that I think is most useful for doing wrong answer journals for RC is focusing on what role the information that I missed played in the argument. Mm. Again, what we're doing with the LSAT is we're reading arguments. It's not It's not like reading just a newspaper or it's not like reading something in National Geographic. It's like somebody is arguing for something. And if you pay attention to the questions that you get, it's like really, really, really rarely that it's just what year was the man land on the moon from this article right it's like it's always stuff and i like maybe 99 of the time even it refers to some role some important role that is being played in the argument right i mean like even weekend questions on rc it's sort of which of these would weaken the opponent's argument that all comes down to like how well you understood the opponent's argument anyway so if you get a weekend question on that wrong then that probably means that like i need to spend a little bit more time focusing on the opponent's argument in this case If the author is taking the time to explain the opponent's position, then I really need to be able to understand why they're saying the opponent's position is what it is, because ultimately the author is going to be making the rest of their argument based off of that sort of initial point. And so like with reading comprehension, I think the most useful thing to do for wrong answer journals there is, again, focus on the role that I'm missing. Was this a bit of support for the main point? Was it the main point? Was it an author's inference question? And again, the author's inference questions, they're always going to be right there. just about how it is that you read the argument. So I think that's really well worded. Thank you very much for your question, Alexandra. Yeah. Thanks, Alexandra. All right. And then Roberto. Hi there. Can you hear me? We can. Yeah. Great. Excellent. Yeah. Also, uh, side note, I really like Nick's Spanish there. I've actually retreated (laughs) to Mexico since September to really engulf myself in this LSAT bitter journey. And, And so my question is, like, I guess, 
throughout the day, you know, my, my normal day used to consist of eight plus hours of just hacking out the core curriculum and some, you know, also drilling, not so much in Jay Weiss lectures, but uh, I reduced that to around six. And I found that I was absorbing a little bit more, but ultimately I'm trying to hit that sweet spot where I'm just not where I am avoiding putting too much time in the wrong thing. And so that that's my question to you guys, because I, I do have the time for now that you know, sat. So I just wanted to get that feedback. Thank you. Yeah. So what was the, what's like the specific question? So how much time in a day, like, you know, just like your typical grind day of LSATing, do you recommend for, I guess in general, you know, it's really tailored to people specifically, but what do you recommend? Well, yeah, I don't know about you, Scott, but for me personally, it was often six to eight hours a day. But like, you know, you want to be careful about burning yourself out. You want to take care of yourself in the process. Overdoing it is not always conducive to learning either. But still, you want to be putting enough work in to where like you're, again, you're in the woodshed, you're practicing and you're making sure that you can get, you know, as much as you can out of it. I was going to say, uh, usually the advice I give to clients is to give as much time as you can sustainably to the LSAT. I would much rather have a client spend 30 or 45 minutes a day, which you know is, is below the average for sure. But I'd rather them do that 30, 45 minutes a day, knowing that they can consistently do that and they're not going to burn out doing that. They're not going to completely disrupt their life doing that. They're not going to have to stop studying for a month because they blew up their job or their family life. And you know now they have to kind of unmess everything up. Then have them go for a month of doing four hours a day and then having to take those breaks or you know burning out or doing things like this. Kind of like Nick, I was very weird in that I, I only studied for 10 weeks leading up to the LSAT and I was doing you know six hours a day in addition to working a full-time job. And, and that was miserable. I don't think I could have done that for another month or two. Probably a much more sane way would have been to study for two or three hours a day and do it over a longer period of time. That's certainly what I recommend to clients now. Yeah. So it's just like a, I think, personal line to be able to draw for yourself is like, when am I being disciplined versus when am I being a little bit undisciplined versus when am I just like overdoing? doing it for the sake of overdoing it, you know? And so, yeah, of course you want to push yourself and sort of make sure that you're putting in the requisite hours, but at the same time, don't kill yourself. <laughs> don't like oh, really overdo it for the sake of overdoing it. Just because you think that eight hours is better than six and then, oh, 10 is better than eight. Mm -hmm. There's definitely some diminishing returns there. Yeah. And I would recommend to everyone, no matter how many hours you're doing in a day, make sure you're taking some breaks, whether that's a day off a week or a weekend here or there, give yourself some time to rest. This is an intense long-term process. Studying for the LSAT is very much more like a marathon than a sprint. So give yourself time to rest between races. Thanks very much for your question, Roberta. Thank you. And then Hannah, you're up. Hi, thanks so much for the time. It was pretty great. I actually have a questions about the syllabus. I'm not, I'm actually in the middle of my study. I'm not finished the whole curriculum yet, but sometimes I'm thinking, is it better to move around the curriculum? Like, is it better to study few courses of like, logic game than get back to the logical reasoning and then like move around the tree section, especially between the logic game and log logical reasoning, or would you recommend it to like follow the curriculum as it is? And as a follow-up to that, like there's in some sections, like, like so many problem sets, I would also wanted to get your insight. Is it better to just like fully do all those problem sets and then do the drilling or it like that type of questions, like a little bit more, what's your take on like how to follow the syllabus? 
Yeah, I, you know, I definitely think that there is a level that you can jump around on it. I think there's some stuff in the beginning that you definitely just shouldn't skip past. The basic logical stuff, the fundamentals of the argument, the introduction to like logic games and stuff like that. But still, I mean, you can sort of treat it like separate curriculums or separate classes or something like that. And then at some point you can jump around a little bit. In terms of, you know, the problem set level and the amount of that you're doing, again, it depends on how much time you have to spend on it. Where do you think you are? Like, how do you think that you're progressing? with this stuff. How well are you doing on these problem sets and things like that? I think that with logic games, though, it's pretty important. At least it was for me because I was, I was again, really bad at logic games when I first started. I think it's pretty important to finish as many of those as you can. All right. It looks like we've got time for one more question here. Chinye? Oh, hello. Thank you, Scott and Nate, for seeing this. My question was actually very similar to Hannah's. So I'm also in the process of just getting done the logical reasoning and the logic games. I was just wondering, like in the middle of doing logic games, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of difficult. Should I go back to logical reasoning like once in a while just to refresh my memory in case I just completely forget about it? Like when I finish logic games, like, do you think that's a problem? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, kind of like a, a lot of the stuff that I was talking about earlier today, which is you want to definitely continue to re-expose yourself before your brain forgets it. One of the things that I thought was a cool thing that I encountered as I was like trying to learn Spanish and and stuff like that is, is this idea of space repetition, right? Where you're reintroducing your brain to stuff like right as you start to forget it. So, you know, if, if there's some kind of word or group of vocabulary words that you're trying to learn and you are like, you're going to learn it one day and then probably forget it 10 minutes later. So you want to study it again in 10 minutes. And then maybe again in like six hours and then maybe again in like the next day and then two days later and then four days. And then like it progressively, the time that you in between studying gets longer and longer. And so I think that it's a good idea still to like, even though you're in the logic game sections, like still go back and practice some logical reasoning just so that you keep the skill fresh. It's not going to be as intensive of like, I'm still studying logic games with that or logical reasoning with that level of intensity, but you definitely, I think, I don't know about you, Scott, but it, to me, it seems like a really good idea to just sort of like keep brushing up on stuff and keep light practicing with logical reasoning. No, absolutely. I think that's one of the great reasons to, you know, kind of keep a subscription around so you can go back and review that. I find with my clients frequently that I'm telling them to go back and review specific issues from there. Because again, as we were kind of talking about with, with the blind review section, the, there are times when you're going to realize coming out of a PT that you know, my issue is timing and that drilling is really going to fix that. And sometimes I do need to go back and review a, a key concept and really brush up because sometimes I maybe I just didn't understand it very well the first time. But now that I've gotten a bunch of these other concepts down, suddenly it can click for me now. So being able to go back and review those things, even if just to refresh them, can be very valuable. That's all the time we have for tonight. Thank you so much for your questions and for your attendance. I'm going to post one link real quick as you guys are heading out. We have posted many links and we talked a little bit about our LSAT tutoring program. Some of you may not know that you can actually book a free consult with one of our LSAT tutors. If you want someone to look over your analytics with you and talk to you about how LSAT tutoring could be useful, feel free to use the link that I just posted there for you. And you can have a free 30-minute consult with one of our tutors. Thank you all so much. We really appreciate you coming out tonight and uh, look forward to hopefully seeing a bunch of you next month when Chris Wynn is going to be presenting another topic for us. So stay tuned for that. Again, thank you all and look forward to seeing you guys next month. Take care. Yeah, thanks everybody. Hey, it's JY again. Thanks for listening. And I hope you got some good advice that you can implement in your own studies. If you are thinking about working with a tutor, get in touch. We'll do a free consultation. You can reach us on sevensage.com. That's it for this episode. Take care of yourself and see you next time.